John 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father, I pray that you bless the morning, the next few moments that you've given me to speak today. Open our hearts, clear our minds. I thank you for amazing salvation and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Do be seated. This passage was one of the most uncomfortable passages for the early church, which tells us um, the early church is a lot like the church we have today. Um, It bothered me for a while when I was doing uh, missions, the understanding of what missiologists call contextualization, which is a very fancy way of saying making yourself uh, relevant to the local culture. And I thought for a long time that... I, I, took, I, took, I took notice of this whole idea of, I'm an American, I need to make sure I'm not translating American things. It took me a while to understand how much the church is similar around the world. There are cultural differences. I believe we overstate them. Because there is a church culture that is the same everywhere. It's not that difficult to figure out that when you go to England, you need to learn to drink a cup of tea. We make a big deal out of those things. You know, we say a bonnet for the hood of the car. You know, a trunk and a boot. And, and we, we, we say those things, and well, it's very, very different. It's not that different. It's not that difficult. Even when I was in Russia for a number of years, we learned the Russian language. You know, other people learn foreign languages, not just missionaries. And they have to go and work in other cultures. And they strike mega business deals. And they, they make you know, global transfers of wealth and business. And it works. And it happens every day all over the world. It's called globalization. And I think sometimes we make a mountain out of something that can be learned and acquired and is very, very simple if you just devote enough time to realizing, here's what I do when I go to this culture. And yet, believe it or not, they're still never going to be fooled. They're always going to know that at the end of the day, you're an American. And that's okay. That's who God made you. Or perhaps Canadian or somebody else. Because I know we have lots of nationalities. Australians last night. But wherever you are, that's who you are. And it's okay to be that. And you can learn to be inoffensive to another culture. 
rather easily. And if you're not, if you're a missionary and you're not becoming contextually um, kind or open to another culture, and you're not doing that, then you're a very, very lazy person. And probably not a very nice person to begin with. Because why wouldn't you? If you're moving to live in another country, why wouldn't you learn their customs, their way of life, their language, and learn to, to be accessible and relevant to them? It's very basic. What I'm more concerned about is once we get past that barrier, and that's just basic. I mean, you don't get rewards for that. A lot of people say, well, I've gone to the mission field and I've done these things and, you know, I've learned the language and I've, you know, I've learned to live here. Well, that's great, but that's not really what we sent you to do. That's pre-training. I mean, that's getting you to the point where you can do what you're supposed to go there to do. And there's a lot of people who... And and I'm going to be very careful because I I want you to understand the bigger picture here. So I'm not trying to be insulting at all. But I'm saying there are a lot of missionaries who go around the world. And you are saying, well, I'm being faithful. Faithfulness is not sitting in one's house playing video games that you played in high school. Okay. And by the way, there's American pastors who do that too. And we need to realize that being faithful, gentlemen, is not handing the children off to your wife while you go and write your sermon again. Because it takes a certain amount of time to write a sermon. But scrolling your 14th blog article that day is not sermon prep. Instead of throwing the ball with your son outside. Okay, so what I want to say, sometimes we pick on missionaries, but there's plenty of American pastors who do the same thing. And we need to realize that just doing the basics of what we're supposed to be doing, saying, yeah, I'm from Texas, can I move to New York and be a pastor? There's some things I need to learn about New York. Okay, so let's take a big step and move past that and say, I've learned to do those things and now figure out what we're supposed to be doing. And then this is where you'll find out something amazing. That the church is a global church. And has it ever occurred to you that we live in 21st century America and we're learning about church life in America from the first century of the Middle East? Okay? Thinking, well, this is the American church. Well, all of the stuff we're teaching about the American church is coming from the Middle Eastern church from 20 centuries ago. So what you'll find out is when you go around the world, church is the same. The gossip, the backbiting, the infighting, the moral scandals, all of the things that happen in American church, they happen in other cultures in other countries because the scripture is very clear about this. We are all the same. We are all lost under sin. We have all gone out of the way. And one thing we have to realize as we go around the world, and this is just a sidebar here, is that sometimes we overstate the goodness of other cultures. As they say, well, I'm American. There's so much bad about American culture. Well, human constructed culture is inherently flawed any country you find it in. And while we need to be very, very real about the problems in the American culture, 
It doesn't mean that we can hold our fire as missionaries in other cultures and say, well, I don't want to Americanize them. Well, make sure you're biblicizing them. If you see sin, it's okay to talk about the sin in that culture. And you don't do it because, well, this is how we do it in America. It should be, this is how we do it in the Bible. And we have to remember Jesus was an American. He was a Middle Eastern, probably swarthy, uh, skinned man. Okay. So, church is the same. Church has problems. People have problems. And we need to realize that as ambassadors of the king, we're citizens of another country. And Jesus, in this context of this passage in John 8, is going into a religious culture which bears a lot of similarity to our own. Because religion is religion. And the more you get around religion, the more you'll realize that to be the case. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives in verse 1, John 8, and early in the morning he came to the temple. Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He went to the temple. He spent a lot of time there. He talked. He debated. Well, the temple was kind of his house. It was okay to be there. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Jesus was a popular teacher. He was a threat in some ways to the ruling religious pharisaical class. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst. Okay, so here's what's happening. As you know, and your Bible college students, you understand this, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. There was a problem there. He was a threat to their order. He was blowing up the works-based structure that they were teaching and living with. And now they're going to give him the ultimate test. They have caught this woman who is taken in the act of adultery and brought her to Jesus. This is the nuclear option. What are you going to do with this one? You can't top this one, Jesus. We've got him here. I look at this scene. I look at a kind of man who would drag a woman from the scene of her greatest shame and bring her into the temple surrounded by men. I look at that kind of man. And I see the face of the devil himself. In the name of religion, in the name of decency and righteousness, and what I see is fraud and lies and hypocrisy. Brings her there, throws her there. What kind of man does that? And of course we ask ourselves, where is the man in that adulterous relationship? Where is he? So they've already got the law wrong because if you want to go back to the letter of the law, they're both supposed to be put to death. But they bring the woman. So there's no, no consistency with Pharisees. They just can't be. And can I say something? The longer you spend in the ministry, the more you will have to fight the Pharisaism of your heart, unless and until 
God breaks you. If God breaks you, and you'll let God break you, then you'll lose that. But that has to happen. Because you have to, have to, you have to come term, to terms, you know, really, really personal terms with who you are and who God is. And when God breaks you, everything changes. A day of horror. I see this as a day of horror. A terrifying moment. You know, you talk about wanting to be a fly on the wall. I wouldn't have wanted to have been a fly on the wall here. I would have wanted to be fly swatted if I was that fly. That's a terrifying thing to have to witness. And I just, I, I, I imagine this woman curled, it, my mind has me thinking of this woman curled into the fetal position, hiding her head, burying her head, while these men stand around her and use her as a prop in their religious game with no regard for her or her life. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm really tired of children and mothers and fathers and people being used as props in religious games. And we do it and we do it and we do it. But there's a critical moment here that's about to take place. And I want you to look at verse 5. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Such. This should be stoned. This thing here. Such. See anything more dehumanizing? Such should be stoned, vermin, outcast, rotten. That right there. Get rid of that. The problem is, here they're talking to somebody who sees people. Because that such right there, that such should be stoned, is an image bearer of God. And the very God who breathed her into existence, who sparked life into her soul, didn't see her as vermin or such, but rather a soul to be redeemed. And this morning, I don't know if you've ever been such, but there's a chance there's some of you today who have been. And maybe if the curtain on your life was pulled back, you would be such if people knew the truth. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not what you are. You're an image bearer of God. And God loves you. God knows you and God loves you. God sees you and God still loves you. And that's a kind of love that you can't invent. It's a kind of love that you can't really even understand because the closest thing we have to it is the love of a parent for a child. Okay. I love my child. I really love my daughter. I love my, I love my sons. I really love my daughter. 
I've, I've been joking that she's really close to altering my view on original sin, but not entirely, Dr. R. I'm, I'm clinging on. I'm clinging on to it. <laughs> my wife, my mother, my mother-in-law, they, they're all telling me, just wait. Just wait a few years. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't see it. I, I just don't see it. <laughs> see, you're an image bearer. God loves you. God knows you. And I love my children just because. I just love them. I love them from the second. They didn't give me a reason to love them. They didn't do any. I just love them. I can't explain it. I just love them. And yet, as you know, in the dysfunction of this world, even to the love of a parent for a child, there's a limit to that. Because we see it break apart again and again. But you can't get out of the love of God. You can't get away from it. It chases after you. Even when you run from it, it's still running after you. It's still there. You can reject it, but it's still there. You say, I don't want it, but it's there. God just loves you. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I love you. I care for you. And as a child of God... When you've accepted that love, Romans chapter 8 tells us nothing can separate us from it. Nothing can separate us from it. And here's where we see the beautiful um, center point, which I call, uh, it's neither Arminian theology nor Calvinist theology. It's biblical theology right here in this middle point where you can't be separated from it. And it's for everybody but you can reject it. You can reject it. Because if you couldn't reject it, it wouldn't be love. It would be something weird and coercive. And I'm not ashamed to say that. Because a love that is forced upon you is not love, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what you want to call it. Some call it sovereignty. But that isn't love. God loves you, but he doesn't force himself upon you. And there's a beautiful moment here where we can start to see God's love as these men contrasted with that. They throw this woman here and they say, such should be stoned. And they are willing to drag this woman to this place of stoning and to take rocks in their hands And throw them against her body until her life ebbs away in the name of their religion. Don't throw stones. Don't be a stone thrower in your ministry. I don't mean literal stones. I know nobody's going to do that. But figurative stones either. We've got so much of that. We don't need any more of that. We need a lot more of Jesus. So don't be a stone thrower. This they said, verse 6, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. 
You know how to really get religious muckety-mucks and Pharisees riled up? Act as though you don't hear them. They get louder and angrier. And the more they do that, the more they reveal themselves. The more they reveal their agenda, the more you really get to see what's on the other side of that wall. We're so reactive. Somebody does something to us, come back at you. We're all, you know, we're all just wearing our victimhood on our sleeves, you know. I'm so glad Jesus wasn't like that. Let's not be that way. I mean, they have put the Lord Jesus Christ in the most unenviable, nightmarish scenario in the temple, a woman accused in adultery, right there surrounding her. I mean, just throwing the entire law of Moses right in his face. (laughs) And he just kneels down and starts to write on the ground. I mean, these are the leaders. This is, this is it. This is the moment, you know. And he's just happily riding on the ground. So, verse 7, when they continued asking him. Oh, I bet they continued asking him. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them. And the way I see this, and kind of the context of the text, I, 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 I hope I'm right. It's always dangerous to you know, just see something, but I, I think this flows from the text. I feel that when Jesus steps up, and, and I want to be very careful to say this is what I'm, I'm, I'm seeing or visioning in this story, that Jesus standing up, I think, probably a little bit put out. I just sense, you know, they've continued asking him. He's been trying to ignore them. When they continued asking him, it says... He lifted up himself. Like, okay, we're going to deal with this now. And I think judging by the next phrase, I'm probably closer to right than not. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Let him cast a stone at her. The first that is without sin, go for it. They want to kill her. They want to kill her right there. They want to murder the woman. Go ahead. You know, in the order of divine justice, there was only one person in the room that day that had the authority to do such a thing. There was only one that day. And the amazing thing about that one is he's the same one who says a bit earlier in John... For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No. But that the world might be saved. Through him. They were talking to the wrong guy. They were there for very different reasons. I'm going to tell you, as you go about your ministry, you are going to encounter other churches and other brothers in Christ, as we say, that are not there for the reason you're there. You are going to have to have a ministry in which you really can sing the song with complete assurance, no condemnation now I dread. And you're going to be criticized for that. And there are going to be people who say, what about the purity of the church? And the 
sanctity of the church. And we have to say we want a pure church and we want a holy church, but we want a healthy church. And it's not a healthy church unless it's got a lot of lost people coming in the doors. Because this isn't heaven. And a lot of people want to make heaven in the church. But, the, but heaven is someday. And we have a job to do. And we're not doing a job if all we're doing is doing this kind of pseudo building up. But we're not going out. You need to equip and you need to disciple. I believe in one-to-one discipleship. Right now in London, we'll have 50 adults going through one-to-one discipleship. Okay, I believe in that. I believe in mentoring. I believe in discipleship classes. We do six a year. So, so don't go off in some direction here on, on that this morning. Of course we believe in that. But if your version of the pure church is that it's 40 of us in a room talking about things and when somebody walks in from the outside we look at them and start to deconstruct who they are and why they're in here that's not a pure church ladies and gentlemen I don't know what that is but that's not a pure church but it seems to me it's much more like a pharisaical church than a God church so in this moment and in this time we're seeing the contrast Jesus is kneeling on the ground writing on the ground they're there to murder he's there to heal And they have two very different purposes. And again, verse 8, he went right back to the ground. He stooped down and he wrote on it. Okay. And they, verse 9, when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Oh, turns out the Pharisees have a conscience too. And it looks like, according to our Lord Jesus Christ, the best way to break into the hard heart of a Pharisee is to say, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. Because, you see, Pharisees need to meet Jesus too. And Jesus talked to the Pharisees, as we know in Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. And I believe there's a lot of Pharisees today that need to be born again. Because when they're born again, they hopefully won't be Pharisees anymore. Or perhaps they just need to be reminded that there was a time in their life when they were born again. And they need to get back to that. And it looks like, according to our Lord, the best way to break into the hard heart of a Pharisee is say, what about your sin? What about your sin? What about your heart? What about your condition? And it looks like, beginning at the eldest, they all left the room. Because as it gets younger, you get more zeal. There's a lot of zeal with youth. There's a young man who recently came to faith in Christ. And, you know, one of the things we're working with him on, he's joined as our uh, staff intern in our church. And um, he's been a Christian for a few years and gone through some discipleship. And he's really sensing a call to ministry. And we hope to get him into um, theological education soon. But he's spending a year doing a staff internship with us in London. And, you know, one of the things we're talking to him about is there's this eager desire, this natural progression. Hey, I've changed. You know, I've changed. Look at this. And then to start looking at everything you see. What's wrong with those guys? What's wrong with that preacher? What's wrong with that guy? Why did they preach like that? Why did they teach like that? I don't understand it. 
And that is a Bible college phenomenon, and I know it happens here because it happens in every college. It's very easy to get filled with zeal and start pointing fingers. And a lot of young men do it. And yet, I'm so glad that for anybody here who points the fingers, I'm so glad that there was somebody five years ago in your life who didn't point the finger at you. Because there's a lot of people who if somebody had pointed the finger at you five years ago, you probably wouldn't be in this college today. The old to the youngest, but finally they all left the room. And then we come down to verse 10. And this is the ultimate moment. Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No man, Lord. No man. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus had written on the ground. There's a lot of theories about this. But I believe that Jesus knew that nothing permanent according to the law should be written on the Sabbath day. He defeated the Pharisees at their own game. He knew the law better than they knew the law because he kind of wrote the law. The record is gone and no man has condemned her. The church demands that justice be tempered with mercy. But mercy does not mean that the sin is forgiven without consequence or accountability. And there are some who would take this in the wrong direction. And this is why there were early church fathers who struggled with this story in the book of John. Because there's an easy leaning over to Pharisaism and an attitude to say, well, we can't let this sort of thing just happen. Completely missing the point that this sort of thing happens. It happens in Pharisaical places. It happens in non-Pharisaical places. The point is the doctrine and the entire story of salvation and grace. And so let's be very clear. Sin is odious and wrong. And it's why Jesus came. But how you deal with sin is what grace and mercy are all about. So what does Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go. 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 And here is a woman who is mocked, abused, thrown into the middle of a jeering, mocking crowd. A crowd of men whose hearts are filled with immorality and disgusting and depraved thoughts and behaviors. 
who stand in self-righteous judgment and throw her in the middle and say, stone her, she is to die. And then Jesus Christ lifts her up and says, go. Go. You're a child of mine. Stand up and go. You have worth. You have value. And you as ministers of the gospel... As people of God this morning, you are called to go to the fallen and go to the broken and lift them up and say, go. Go somewhere. You're on your way to glory. Stand up and go. Stop kneeling. Stop being beaten upon. Go. Rise up. Jesus is always doing that to people, isn't he? He's lifting them up. He said, stand, go. And this woman is no exception. Go and sin no more. And if you look at the text, what it's telling you here is fascinating. Because he doesn't condemn her, but he treats her as one would treat a child. He says, go and stop that. Stop that. Stop that. That's not why you're here. That's not who you are. That's not what you're about. Go and stop that. That's not how you're supposed to be living. Oh, did she know it? Oh, my, did she know it? Go and stop it. Sin no more. That's the two messages of the gospel. Because what you do is you take people who are slaves, they're bound in chains to sin and death and hell. And when mercy rushes in, you give them the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the flood tide of mercy that overwhelms their soul, and you say, go. You're free from that. And don't go back to that. And that's what Paul writes about all in Romans. He said, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm alive to Christ. There's a transformation in which Christ lifts you up and says, that's not who you are anymore. You're free to not be that way anymore. You don't have to go down that road anymore. You're not that person anymore. So why would you go back to the stinking decay of the old ways? One of the things I fear is that we just don't understand our true level of brokenness. The decay, the rot, the destruction that we cause when we sin and we fail to meet God's standard. But thank God for His mercy. That we don't have to live under that weight, that burden, that depression. But rather that he comes to us with full knowledge of who we are. Oh, there was no hiding it, was there, with the woman? No hiding it. She was what she was. She is what she is. And you are what you are. And I am what I am. But God, who is rich in mercy, (laughs) lifts us up. Go and sin no more. That's the message you need to be preaching. Of course, you know verse 12 very well. It's no accident that the very next verse is. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. I'll say you are. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Oh my, does that verse make so much more sense in light 
of the last 11 verses. So the question today is, are you really going to carry the light? Because the light shines in the darkness. It reveals the depravity. It reveals the truth. But then the source of the light itself is everlasting grace and mercy. Today, you need that mercy. You need that mercy. You need that mercy for the darkness of your heart. And when that mercy is real to you, you can extend it to others. And maybe, maybe we'll get the light into a lot more dark places when we go and say, go and sin no more. Father, thank you for this college, for these students. Father, I pray that you break our hearts today and remind us of our own wickedness, our own failure, and realize that it is your grace and your love and your mercy that is from everlasting to everlasting. And that your mercy is new every single day and every morning. And as we go out into the world to reach the lost, to carry the light, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, all these things that we've come here to prepare ourselves to do, may we go not as Pharisees, but with the grace that could take a fallen woman, lift her up with worth, eternal worth, and set her free to live a transformed life of grace.